would bet, <laughs> and I don't know this to be true because I, I, I do not look at oil and gas companies all that much, but I would bet that mm -hmm. if we just picked some random oil or natural gas company and uh -huh. we looked at its 2030 earnings estimates, uh -huh. that it would have a lower price to sales and price to earnings multiple on 2030 estimates than mm -hmm. SoFi. Mm -hmm. That's 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 what I would bet. I would I would make a strong <laughs> bet on that. What's up, HGI investors, and welcome back to Hypergrowth Investing. I'm Aaron Davis, and as always, please be joined by investment analyst Luke Lango. Luke, what's going on today? Hey, Aaron, it's good to see you. Good to see you. Uh, market's been in turnaround mode. I think the turnaround persists, so we got a lot to talk about today. It's going to be a good call. Great. Uh, looking forward to getting that in just a few moments. If this is your first time joining us, Hypergrowth Investing is the weekly podcast that picks the brain of investment analyst Luke Lango. Each week, we take an in-depth look at emerging tech and investment innovations, electric vehicles, cryptocurrencies, the metaverse, and more. Nothing is off limits. If you're joining us for the first time, we go up every Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcast. So make sure to hit like and subscribe to get Hypergrowth Investing as soon as it goes up. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator, lifelong learner, and your proxy into the mind that is the Luke Lango. Again, ton of things to cover, so let's dive right in. Uh, mm -hmm. Starting off with checking in on a show favorite, one of your favorites, SoFi. You know, the White House and President Biden are considering canceling some amount of student loans. I think they talk about an amount of around $10,000 per loan. Um, does this change your outlook on SoFi? Uh, just rip the Band-Aid off already, Biden. Just rip it off. Cancel the $10,000 and let's move on. Uh, this has created sentimental overhang on SoFi's business, but at the end of the day, $10,000 uh, per student when tuition's running you $250, $260 um, is nothing. We're talking a drop in the ocean, and it's not going to materially impact SoFi's business, and instead, the overhang is what's killing the stock and the company. Actually, the company's growing just fine. The overhang, the sentimental overhang of this potential cancellations um, hurting the stock. So when I read headlines, Wall Street Journal's came out and said, I think a decision's due by August. I wish it was due by June 10th. Just make the decision and get it over with and let's move on. Um, this has been such a sideshow for SoFi. And you know who thinks that is the CEO who just yesterday went out and bought another $150,000 worth of the stock. Um, he just, he's buying in these 150, 200K increments. I think, let me see, I wrote it down the other day what his, what his total is. Um, yeah, past month, the guy, Anthony Noto's, accumulated $1.1 uh of sofi stock year to date 2.3 million dollars so the the head honcho at the company a person who is very smart very experienced in business um and has a track record of success in the business world uh enormous success in the business world thinks it's a sideshow and is buying the stock like crazy think you join him i've said it multiple times just keep joining them uh the stock is starting to turn around starting to act very favorably um, for investors, just like a lot of these hyper growth names have been over the past month. I think that trend continues and even accelerates. So just rip the Band-Aid off, get past this, and then I think the stock can fly. So then what does happen when the Band-Aid does get ripped? Does it even affect SoFi's business in any meaningful way at all? Or is it just 
No, I mean, they're they, they like, pretty much already priced in. Uh, the mm-hmm. management cut got, cut the guidance to reflect a further pause in the student loan moratorium. $10,000 cancellation, like I said, when you're talking about tuition at $250, $260 for a lot of people, drop in the ocean. It's not going to meaningfully impact them. Meanwhile, the rest of the business is still firing all cylinders. They're growing out their, their ver- uh, multiple verticals of the business. Um mm-hmm. So I think that everything looks pretty good there. Once this $10,000 cancellation happens, which I do believe it will happen. I do believe we are mm-hmm. going to get that, yeah. that student loan forgiveness. Um, yeah, maybe management you know, cuts the guide by a little, but the stock is so washed, and you've seen this before, that sometimes bad news, if the bad news is not as bad as some people feared, can cause a breakout rally, a prolonged breakout rally. And I think that this is going to be kind of like, you know, washing the kitchen sink where we're just going to get it all done and then boom, we're ready to go. And I think that's exactly what's going to happen with SoFi stock. So I think this name is starting to turn around now, but is due for a massive performance in Q3, Q4 once the band-aid gets ripped off of the student loan, you know, sideshow um business Mm -hmm. and that has a lot to do with the fact that while sofi started as this loan company it's since grown into this amazing as you described in the past this is a one-stop shop app for all our financial needs correct yeah i mean we've talked about it before right it's the um uh amazon selling books in 2001 who cares about amazon selling books today um, that's that's the SoFi narrative. SoFi started off with the hero product of student loan refinancing. They're going to continue to um, be the leaders in student loan, re- student loan refinancing, and I expect that to be a growth vertical for them for many years to come. But the piece of the revenue pie that it's going to comprise is going to become smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller over time. And as it does, all these other verticals are going to grow more rapidly. The whole business is going to grow very quickly. You're going to get economies of scale, profit margins are going to rapidly expand. You're going to get huge revenues, huge profits, and a really, really, really high stock price. So down here, five, six, seven, eight bucks, anything below 10 is a absolute steal. Buy mm-hmm. it, put in a coffee can, forget about it, check in five years, you're going to be up a lot. Awesome. Uh, more news out of uh, the White House is that Biden plans to waive tariffs for 24 months on solar panels uh, by probe. Um, again, we, we touched on this before, and I think I'm, I'm pretty excited about what you're about to talk about. But can you explain exactly what's going on here and why this is uh, yep. bullish for the solar industry? Yeah, so I think the White House just kickstarted a gold rush for the mm-hmm. solar industry for the next 24 months. That the next 24 months are going to be the most robust, the most prolific, the highest growth era we've ever seen in the United States solar industry. And the reason being is we have to understand the story here. So, and this story goes back a long time. Let's go back <laughs> to when the solar industry really started kicking into gear. And that's mm-hmm. early 2010s. Uh, U.S. solar project developers quickly realized that making solar panels in China was a lot cheaper than making them in the United States. And because at that point in time, we were all about globalization, all about comparative advantages, U.S. solar project developers were sourcing all of their panels from China. U.S. solar panel makers started complaining about that. The government started to listen, and I believe it was in 2012, 2013, the Obama administration kind of brought down the hammer and put some huge tariffs on Chinese solar panel imports. 
So the hope of that was that instead of sourcing from China, these U.S. solar project developers were going to start sourcing their panels from uh, American companies, from American solar panel manufacturers. But that's not what happened, because as it turns out, it's also cheaper to make solar panels in Thailand and in all throughout all of Southeast Asia. So instead of sourcing from America, U.S. solar project developers started sourcing panels from Southeast Asia. So it was basically just like a game of, you know, hot potato. And we just pass the hot potato over to, to Southeast Asia. And that's been the trend for, you know, a good 10 years now. But there have been a series of complaints throughout 2021 and in 2022, uh, the similar to 2011, 2012, where U.S. solar uh, makers, U.S. solar panel makers are saying, hey, this is not fair. This is just dumping. We can't compete. They have lower costs. Help us, government. Help us. <laughs> Uh, the government has kind of neglected those those calls for a while until early 2022. Um, there was one claim brought by a small California-based solar panel manu- solar panel manufacturer that said there is tariff circumvention going on. So mm-hmm. what they claimed was that these Chinese solar panel makers are actually, as opposed to just sending directly to the U.S., are rerouting their supply to Southeast Asia, which is then coming to the U.S., which is mm-hmm. just textbook circumvention, textbook tariff circumvention. The Department of Commerce agreed to look into it, so there's been an ongoing investigation, and that has somewhat, no, not somewhat, that has stymied growth in the solar industry. Mm-hmm. Solar project development in the United States as of last month, was on pace to decline about 10% in 2022. Mm-hmm. And this is an industry that's been growing 20 30%, 40% a year. So we're talking a rapid and substantial shift from huge growth to negative growth. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because this investigation, the conclusions of the investigation, could yield more tariffs on Southeast Asian solar panel imports. And not just that, but they could be applied retroactively. So anything that was built during this investigation could be then subsequently and retroactively hit with tariffs. Uh So basically, there's the threat of bigger costs uh, for solar projects in the U.S. That's been a prevalent fear, which has stymied growth throughout the industry over the past uh, about five, six months now. Uh Yesterday, Monday... So people will hear this on Wednesday, so two days ago. Monday, the White House came out and said, we're not going to levy any additional tariffs, regardless of the Department of Commerce investigation Mm -hmm. and the conclusions of that investigation. We're not going to levy any additional tariffs on solar panel imports from Southeast Asia for the next 24 months. Mm Mm-hmm. And this is something that we saw coming because Biden and company love solar. There is not a person on this planet who loves solar more than Joe Biden. (laughs) He was not going to let the Department of Commerce investigation put Mm -hmm. the nail in the coffin of one of his biggest initiatives, which is clean energy. So we knew that Biden was going to do something to not let the Department of Commerce or the Department of Commerce do this or hurt the industry that much. And he came through with a very big action of basically saying, okay, we have two years here. The mm-hmm. Department, of Commerce, Department of Commerce, they're going to do their investigation. They're going to find their conclusions, regardless of what conclusions they find. We have a two-year stretch here where I am, the United States government, is guaranteeing there will be no more tariffs on solar panels from Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. But after that two years, if this 
investigation does yield or does come to the conclusion that there is tariff circumvention going on, then at the conclusion of that two year period, there may be the potential for bigger tariffs. So what that has essentially done is created a shot clock on the solar industry where you have two years to build solar projects in the United States at with no additional cost, with no additional tariffs. And then after Mm -hmm. that, who knows? Mm hmm. That who knows, there's the fear of higher costs subsequent to this two-year period. So what we think is going to happen is, one, all of these solar projects that were kind of waiting in the wings for the conclusion of the Commerce Department's investigation are now going to just rush online because okay. you know the, the fear of tariffs is gone. And then number two, anybody that was even thinking about building solar projects over the next five years is now going to accelerate that window to the next two years. So mm-hmm. you're going to jam pack all this activity, all this solar project development in the United States over the next 24 months. It's going to be a gold rush, especially since natural gas prices are soaring, oil prices are soaring, all fossil fuel prices are soaring. So we think there is going to be this massive gold rush into the solar industry over the next two years. Solar stocks are they're up, but they're well off their highs. We think solar stocks are a fantastic investment over the next two years, not to mention, we actually think the better way to play this is through energy storage stocks. We've talked about Mm -hmm. energy storage before. Mm -hmm. We love energy storage, absolutely love it. We think it's the single biggest growth vertical, growth opportunity of the clean energy transition because we need energy storage to back up renewable non or renewable power because renewable mm-hmm. power is largely intermittent solar sun doesn't shine every day wind mm-hmm. wind doesn't blow every day we got to back up that power if we want to create a truly sustainable decarbonized grid so we think energy storage systems have massive growth potential something like 70 or 80 percent of all energy storage systems installed in the united states are attached to solar projects so if you're going to get a solar gold rush over the next two years thanks to what the white house just did you're going to get an energy storage gold rush as well and we think energy storage stocks have bigger long-term upside potential and therefore our favorite way to play this we love to buy solar stocks here but even more we love to buy energy storage stocks here so we think this is a really good time to get into some of those beaten up ess names buy them next two years should see massive gains in those stocks we're very confident in that call is there a risk of with the way that you're describing that everybody's going to be coming to solar right now of oversaturating the market with all these different solar plays or you know is there just enough to go around for everybody uh over you mean in terms of in the market like oversaturation yeah. of actual solar stocks yeah yeah i mean you got to be selective um yeah. i think what you have to do is you either have to know the industry Okay. And know the players and pick the best ones or just go and buy the ETF. T-A-N, Invesco Solar ETF, that's a ticker. Um, I think you can just, you know, you can buy that if you just want to not, you know, de-risk yourself and not, you know, take individual bets. We mm-hmm. are taking individual bets because we feel like we know the industry very well. We know sure. which solar companies have the the tech have the competitive moats built, have the advantages established. Uh, in the energy storage space, unfortunately, there's no real ETF for that, so we are picking individual names in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, there is definitely going to be rising tides lift all boats, but some boats lift faster than others. Mm-hmm. And so it, selectivity is going to be very important in this industry going forward. Well, continuing kind of that trend of alternative energy, uh, I want to jump into 
uh, we talked touched on it a little bit last week um, with uh, electric vehicles and specifically uh, the Hummer that came out with their own EV. Barron's right. basically asked, how does a 9,000 pound tank that drives like a sports car sound when they were explaining the new uh, Hummer EV? You know, yep. we talk about EVs all the time on the show. Um, it's And that's in itself is like a super compelling statement. Um, so I just want to get your thoughts on what uh, General Motors is doing in the industry and how this all kind of plays into your general EV market outlook. The Barron's piece convinced me that legacy autos, legacy automakers can mm -hmm. compete in the electric vehicle race. That is still not a reason to buy legacy automaker stocks. Okay. Just because they can compete doesn't mean they aren't still cannibalizing their old sales pipeline. For mm -hmm. every electric Hummer that GM is going to sell, it's likely a gas car they're not going to sell. For every electric pickup truck that Ford is going to sell, it's likely a gas-powered pickup truck they're not going to sell. So, uh -huh. just because these guys can compete in the electric vehicle industry in the electric vehicle race, which the Barron's article to me proves that they can. The electric Hummer mm -hmm. looks very awesome. There have been very good reviews of um, the Ford Mustang Mach-E. Um, the electric F-150 looks like it's going to be a massive hit. So it does appear, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that legacy automakers can and will compete in the electric vehicle race. But still, for every EV they sell, they're going to be cannibalizing their old sales. So those stocks do not deserve to trade at the Tesla-like multiples, at the Rivian-like mm -hmm. multiples, at the Lucid-like multiples. They deserve to trade at very low multiples because... Mm -hmm. Every new car they sell electric wise is one they're not selling gas powered wise. Having said that, these stocks do become great investments when the valuations fall below their long term averages. So that's what we're looking at for Ford and GM. We mm -hmm. don't want to chase these stocks. We want them to come back down. We want to buy them when they're trading at historically discounted valuations. So we're looking at their long-term average price-to-sales multiples, their long-term average price-to-earnings multiples. We want to buy them when they're below that because we don't think the fundamental growth trend of mm -hmm. the business has changed all that much for the next five to 10 years. It's just that because they're going to be successful in electric vehicles, they're not going to collapse. They're going to keep growing. They're going to sustain growth, but mm -hmm. it's not like they're all going to sudden become 10, 15, 20% growth companies. They're going to stay one, two, three, four, 5% growth companies. So mm -hmm. that's the same growth probably they've growth profile they've had for the past decade they're going to sustain that growth profile for the next decade we want to buy them at valuations below what worked in the past decade so that's our strategy with gm and ford um mm -hmm. the other implication of that baron's piece and of this idea that legacy automakers are actually going to compete in the um electric vehicle race is you cannot model for these new EV startups, whether it be Tesla, Rivian, Lucid, Canoe, Arrival, whatever the name is, you cannot model for them to take 20% of the electric vehicle market. Mm -hmm. The biggest automakers on the planet today control anywhere between 8 to 12% of the global auto market in terms of unit sales. Mm -hmm. Tesla owns about 16% of mm -hmm. 
of the global electric vehicle market in terms of unit sales. Mm -hmm. What that tells me is that Tesla inevitably is due for about 400 to 800 basis points of market share erosion over the next decade. Because I think- that was going to be my, my question is, so I totally understand what you're saying where how with the legacy automakers that, you know, if they sell an electric vehicle, that means they're not selling a gas vehicle. But if they're selling an electric vehicle, like Ford is selling an F-150, that's one less Rivian truck that Rivian sells. Yep, exactly. Right. So that, that that's the real investment implication here is that mm-hmm. you cannot, again, you cannot model Tesla to control 16% of the market forever. Mm-hmm. When all is said and done, the EV market... Legacy automakers are going to be able to compete in the EV race. We know that now. That yeah. means that by 2030, if we look at the electric vehicle market, you're mm-hmm. going to have Ford selling a lot of EVs, GM selling a lot of EVs, Toyota selling a lot of EVs, Lucid's ramped, Rivian's ramped, Tesla's ramped. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have all of these players, just like you have all of these players in the legacy auto market. So what is probably going to happen, what that market share pie is going to look like in 2030, the 2030 electric vehicle market share pie is going to look a lot like probably mm-hmm. in terms of size of each individual component, the 2022 electric vehicle market or uh, a regular auto market share mm-hmm. pie. The, that's eight to 12% on the leaders. Mm-hmm. Look at the EV market. You're probably going to get eight to 12% on the leaders by 2032. Okay, Mm -hmm. so Tesla, 16 percent, they're probably going to end up at 12 percent. That's 400 points Mm -hmm. of uh, 400 basis points of margin compression in 2030. That's Mm -hmm. why we aren't super bullish on Tesla stock right now, because when Mm -hmm. we look at that valuation and when we break down our model and we look at our projections for 2030, 2035, you look out there. In order for that stock to kind of get to that one thousand dollar price level and stay up there and be worth that today, it mm-hmm. needs 15, 16, 17% market share of the electric vehicle market. If you come down to 10, 11, 12%, all of a sudden a $1,000 plus price stock price today doesn't make much sense. So that's mm-hmm. why we're not, every time we see Tesla peak above a thousand, we're like, all right, maybe let's, let, let's sell a little bit here because fundamentally it, it's overvalued at those levels. Um, mm-hmm. When we look at a Rivian or a Lucid, we think that mod- we're modeling for those to have somewhere between 5 to 10% market share by 2030. And on those mm-hmm. assumptions, then those stocks are actually undervalued. So the way you got to look at these, these companies is if it looks like a really high quality electric vehicle maker, assume mm-hmm. they're going to nab between 5 to 10% of the market by 2030. Mm-hmm. If under that assumption the stock is undervalued, then buy the stock. If it's overvalued, then ditch the stock. If you're looking at a low-quality EV maker, you got to assume 0 to 5% market share. But mm-hmm. the days of assuming that Tesla is going to control 20% of the market or Lucid or Rivian or anybody's going to control 20% of the market, it's not going to happen. It's going to remain a very competitive marketplace where the market share percentages are going to be 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, they're going to be in that range and no one's going to be 15 and up. So that's that's the real implication of what we're seeing out of Legacy Autos and their success with creating EVs. So we talk a lot about EVs and I want to kind of shift gears just a little bit. Um, You know, the innovation that we talk about is everywhere in this market. We're talking about the Hummer and how it's this a tank with the luxury of a sports car. What makes the EV industry such a forefront of a new and emerging emerging technologies versus, you know, when, you know, Apple just had the 
worldwide developer conference and it just seems like okay right. it's cool new new tricks up their sleeve but the real innovations really seem to, to be, seem to be coming out of the ev sector uh how do you explain that um that's an interesting question Aaron. i never really thought of it that way in comparing the trajectory of innovation across you know from apple to the ev sector for whatever it's worth, you know, Apple is pushing forward on Project Titan, mm -hmm. which is their autonomous <laughs> electric vehicle project. And that's definitely mm -hmm. happening. The Apple car okay. is definitely going to be a thing. So the, just because the developer conference lacked the pizzazz of like the electric Hummer sure. um, doesn't mean Apple is not working on some really innovative, cool things behind the scenes. But mm -hmm. it's. It's in Apple's playbook to only announce something when it is final, when it is mm -hmm. ready for market, when it is going to actually change the world. That's when they launch it. So maybe that explains the lack of pizzazz coming out of the uh, developer conference for Apple mm -hmm. and the lack of pizzazz we've seen in their development pipeline over the past few years. But mm -hmm. I do think that, you know, the Apple car is going to launch. I think it's going to be a great product. And I think that by 2025, 2026, 2027, there's going to be a lot of buzz about that Apple car. And that's another thing. Look, looking at the market share, now you got to throw Apple in the mix too, right? <laughs> Apple is going yeah. to make an autonomous electric car. They're going to. So they're going to be a slice in the 2030 EV pie as well. They're not mm -hmm. going to be a small slice. It's Apple for no. God's sake. I mean, so, it's so to that, Go ahead. To that point, it seems that the innovation that Apple is doing is being geared towards this new electric vehicle versus, again putting more of those, whatever they're doing with the car to some of their uh, consumer products now. So what's well, the, it, why is that focused so huge, on EVs? huge opportunity, Aaron, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I believe that global automotive sales surpassed $1 trillion in 2021. It's a mm -hmm. trillion dollar market that is for the first time in a century, basically being fundamentally disrupted. We're mm -hmm. shifting the way we make cars. You know, a company like Arrival is doing the robotic assemblies. GM has a fully automated factory that's dedicated exclusively to making EVs. So we're changing the way we make these cars. Um, we're changing the way these cars, what they fundamentally are in terms of the engine, the driving force of them. We're changing who's driving them, the me driving versus a robot driving versus a software driving. So mm -hmm. every we're changing the shape of these cars. Canoe's got this, you know, totally skateboard architecture that builds this bug looking machine. That's all about <laughs> seating capacity and made for, um, uh, a self-driving era zooks the company that amazon bought i don't know if you've seen their car but it's basically like a shuttle that just the doors open on the side you come in and you sit and you're facing it's kind of like um mm -hmm. uh like like a ski lift almost mm -hmm. um and so like everything about cars is changing for the mm -hmm. first time in a century so yeah. you're getting all of those changes in a trillion dollar industry happening at once that's why a lot of the innovation firepower if you will a lot of the mm -hmm. resources are being dedicated towards this industry whether it be electric or i'm lumping them in together right now electric sure, and sure. yeah um, because they they the, the progressions are moving hand in hand and mm -hmm. so that's i think that would explain um why you're seeing a lot of innovation in this industry because the winners here stand to make a lot of money um, we all we all have cars. We all need cars. We're all going to mm -hmm. keep using cars. Um, 
the winners here stand to make a lot of money because it's it's it, again it's also beyond cars or passenger cars right it's, it's buses it's trucks it's mm-hmm. it, it's it, you know it's a lot of, it's all transportation mediums really they can extend into planes ships so huge market when you start talking about all those other markets maybe you're talking a two three four trillion dollar marketplace here that's why everyone's excited that's why there's a lot of innovation firepower here that's why we're really excited about the investments in the space no, it's. I mean, it definitely sounds like an exciting time to, you know, be paying attention to electric vehicles. So, yeah. Um, going into our market check-in, um, you know, jobs numbers came out last week. Uh, mm-hmm. ADP missed expectations, while Friday's non-farm payrolls came in above expectations. Um, yep. What's your read on the labor market, and how will this continue to impact or not impact uh, Fed action and uh, therefore stocks? I think that. The jobs report we heard last Friday was the last hurrah of a labor market that is on the verge of collapsing. Okay. Um, The economy's biggest job creators over the past decade have been technology companies. These tech Mm -hmm. companies have grown by leaps and bounds. Their stock prices have soared, and that's given them a lot of ammunition to go on massive hiring sprees. So when you talk about the true force behind the labor market, you're talking about hyper-growth technology companies. Mm -hmm. Those companies are now either firing people, not hiring people, or slowing the pace of hiring. Um, mm-hmm. I got I got a list pulled in front of me because I knew you were going to ask me this question. So I got a list pulled in front <laughs> of me of all the, all the companies that mm-hmm. are doing this. So Tesla, obviously, just Elon Musk yeah. just announced going to be cutting yeah. uh, workforce salaried employees by ten percent. So that's that, that's where there's some firing going on. Um, mm-hmm. Who else is firing? Netflix, Robinhood, mm-hmm. Carvana, mm-hmm. Klarna, the buy now pay later platform, okay. PayPal. Yep. All okay. those are big job creators that are now t- turned into job destroyers. They're firing. They're laying off people, mm-hmm. okay? Microsoft, NVIDIA, Lyft, Snap, Uber, Salesforce, Meta, Twitter, all those companies have either stopped hiring or slowed mm-hmm. the pace of their hiring. So again, those are j- massive job creators that have turned into either zero job creators or much smaller job creators. Mm-hmm. When you look at all that, you look at all those announcements that are going on, it's kind of like, how does this market add jobs at this point? We're mm-hmm. already at super low unemployment. We're already mm-hmm. near to pre-pandemic and full employment levels. Mm-hmm. And all of the economy's biggest job creators of the past decade are turning into either job destroyers or they're not job creators anymore. How mm-hmm. does the labor market add jobs at this point, at this juncture? Mm-hmm. I just don't think it can. I don't think mm-hmm. it will. And so I think that the labor market is going to meaningfully slow in terms of job ads over the next few months, especially when you're mm-hmm. considering that we've seen across the board throughout the Q1 and Q2 um, earnings seasons and throughout um, company updates post that, that enterprise spending is slowing. People are tightening their belts. Uh, mm-hmm. Companies are tightening their belts. When they're tightening, people aren't hiring. Companies aren't hiring when they're tightening their belts. They're waiting and seeing. So mm-hmm. I think the labor market is really due for some weakness over the next few months. How does that impact the Fed decision, the Fed uh, trajectory? Very positively for uh, risk assets, for equities, mm-hmm. because remember, the Fed has a dual mandate, price stability and full employment. Mm-hmm. 
price stability, we're seeing inflation waning. We're seeing inflation come down. Um, Mm -hmm. Full employment. One of the reasons the Fed thinks they can hike rates so aggressively and is forecasting for such a great aggressive rate hike action is the labor market is so strong. The jobs numbers have been great. The unemployment rate is super low. If -hmm. that starts to waver, if there starts Mm -hmm. to be weakness in those numbers, then the Fed's going to start second-guessing their rate hikes. Mm -hmm. They don't care about the stock market. They do to an extent. They'll watch it. But (laughs) ostensibly, they can't care too much about it because that's not their mandate. Mm -hmm. They don't even really care about economic expansion all that much. They Mm -hmm. care about dual mandate, price stability, full employment. Mm -hmm. So if anything's going to get this Fed to stop the rate hikes, to slow the rate hikes, to take a pause – It's Mm -hmm. going to be destruction in the labor market. And I think we're going to get destruction in the labor market. Does that mean we go to job losses? Mm -hmm. I don't think so. I think Mm -hmm. we go, you know, we were, we were averaging 400,000 plus. We came down to 300,000 ish numbers. I feel like we're going to get to 100,000 ish. We're going to get to that range. Not going to get to zero. I'm not going to get to negative, Mm -hmm. but that trajectory is going to spook fed members that could be further ammunition for the Fed to pause in September or at least go from a 50 bips cadence to a 25 bips cadence. Now, is it just these larger companies that are that are uh, that we're seeing the slow of no, job hiring? No, and- no, 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 it's, it's happening. So uh, a lot of the the labor market is powered by small businesses and startups, mm-hmm. and those companies are also tightening the belts and because Mm -hmm. the vcs backing them are saying tighten your belts Mm -hmm. like these vcs are seeing the markets they're understanding what's going on they know Mm -hmm. that we're in for choppiness so they're giving these companies money on the assumption or on the command actually be strategic with your spend so Mm -hmm. you're also seeing small business america startup america mid business america there's a Big slowing and hiring going on there too. So I think exactly. that across the board, you're gonna you're seeing labor market weakness, or at least the beginnings of labor market weakness. The ADP mm-hmm. report showed that. The non-farm payrolls report didn't show that. I think by next month they're gonna both agree and they're both gonna show uh, significant slowing and hiring. Gotcha. Um, also, the CPI print is coming out on Friday. Do you have any expectations yeah. uh, here? And if so, you know what should we be looking for? <clears throat> Yeah, so I'm definitely looking for a below expectations print on Friday. I'm looking for slowing inflation. I think that's both going. Those are both going to be true. Um, Mm -hmm. The reality is that consumer demand is slowing. We've heard that from all the retailers. Consumer demand is slowing. Um, Inflation is now coming up against some pretty tough laps from a year ago, Mm -hmm. and. Supply chains are meaningfully improving. So <clears throat> we did a lot of chart sharing last week. I haven't done any this week. Let's do one, shall we? Sure. Let me know if you can see her. Can you see her? It looks like it's coming in. Yep, I see her. Okay, let's go to the retail inventories. <clears throat> so this is a measure of the millions of dollars of inventories that retailers in america have um Mm -hmm. as you can see here in 2020 it took a massive Mm -hmm. spill 
Yeah. And it's it's struggled to come back for a long time. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, inflation is a function of supply and demand. Demand's high and supply is low. Inflation's high. This is telling you that inflation or that supply is low, right? These mm-hmm. retailers don't have enough inventory to meet what is demand. Mm-hmm. Because if, if this if this consider this is the supply line, supply took mm-hmm. a massive dip here. Demand did too, but demand kind of kept going up here. So mm-hmm. you had this huge gap between supply and demand. Now, all of a sudden, look what's happened here over the past couple months. Mm-hmm. Inventories have soared, absolutely yeah. soared. This last number I have here is March 2022. Now, if you look at this on a long-term trend line, I'm sorry I can't draw the trend line for you, mm-hmm. but you know, boom, this is kind of the trend line. We're going we're up. Going up. We're going up. We're going up here, and so here's the trend line. So basically, we are now only a couple ten million dollars short of being mm-hmm. at the historical historically normal trend line where an inflation was significantly lower throughout all these periods so these inventories are building and they're getting back to historically normal levels consistent with the historically normal trend mm-hmm. and at the same time what did we just hear from target today tuesday we heard from target that our inventories are actually maxed out like we have so many inventories, we are going to do a price. We're going to do a discount on everything. We're going to clear <laughs> our inventories. Mm-hmm. So Target's coming out here. They're saying supply chains are improving. We mm-hmm. have a bunch of inventories. We sure. need to clear it for the summer season. So we're going to sell everything at super low prices. Mm-hmm. That's got to help inflation. This yeah. is one of America's largest retailers basically saying we're going to sell everything at super discounts over the next two months. Mm-hmm. That's got to help inflation a lot. Yep. Walmart, yeah. I, you know, if, if Target's inventories are built that large, Walmart also reported a large increase in inventories last quarter. So mm-hmm. did a, a bunch of the mall retailers, Urban Outfitters, American Eagle. Like you're seeing inventory builds across the board. Okay, that means you're going to get a lot of discounting here. So supply is up. You're going to get some discounting. Demand mm-hmm. is softening. This supply demand gap that existed throughout 2021 and into the first part, first half of 2022, is mm-hmm. now rapidly converging to a point where I think they're normalizing and balancing one another out. I expect inflation to rapidly and meaningfully decelerate over the next several months, much mm-hmm. more quickly than what the street anticipates, much more quickly than what the Fed anticipates. And as a result, when you couple this rapid and meaningful deceleration in inflation with labor market weakness, you create a very strong fundamental case for the Fed to switch up policy in okay. September. I okay. think they go from 50 bips to 25 bips, but they could mm-hmm. go to a pause. Either way, breaking the 50 bips cadence is going to create a basis for yields to move lower and stocks to move higher. I think the call is breakout rally in stocks, especially hyper growth, rate sensitive stocks in the second half of the year. We're already seeing that turnaround materialize ever since early May. So about the past Mm -hmm. month, there have been some pretty enormous rallies, some pretty big rallies. Mm -hmm. A lot of our stocks are up 50, 60, 70 percent over that stretch alone. There have been some pretty big Mm -hmm. rallies. You're gonna. I think you're probably gonna get a little bit of turbulence. You know, we mm-hmm. we don't go all. We two steps up, one step back. Yeah. Two steps up, one step back. So I think you're gonna continue to do that. But I think the trend is going to be up and to the right from here. And come September, you're gonna throw fuel on the fire. You're gonna get an accelerant to the rally. That's that's kind of our macro call right now. Nice, exciting. Uh, going into our uh, crypto check-in, uh, real quick. New York Senate different passes story. a moratorium. Different story, Aaron. 
Cryptos what? are a different story right now. Cryptos I just want to put that out there. It's All right. Well, uh, definitely a different story. Again, New York Senate passes a moratorium uh, to ban carbon-based crypto mining. Um, so what's going on there? And is this a red flag for all crypto? Uh, no, I mean, it's, it's just um, the regulation wave that you're seeing right now is a regulation wave related to uh, eco-friendly Bitcoin mining or crypto mining, basically. So mm-hmm. um, that's not terribly important in terms of the regulatory framework here. I don't think it really impacts adoption all that much, impacts mining all that much, impacts mm-hmm. anything all that much, really. Um, but what I think you do have to watch out for is the next wave of regulation because, I mean, we've all read the report, the reports and they, they keep, they keep coming out. The terror wipeout. Yeah. Caused a lot of pain mm-hmm. for retail investors. And mm-hmm. you read the stories of, you know, I, I, I lost my home cause of it. I lost my life savings. You know, my, my, my family doesn't have any money anymore. Um, now granted, I don't know what those people were doing, putting all that money into Luna, but <laughs> At the same time, mm-hmm. those are the types of stories that get politicians worked up. You know, mm-hmm. when when mom and pa lose 50K, lose their retirement, that's uh, that's when politicians step in. They don't step in when when hedgies get blown up. They don't step in when, um, you know, it's, it, it's, it's rich people getting hurt. They step mm-hmm. up when retail folks are getting hurt because that's mm-hmm. their calling card. That's what gets them reelected when they help the, the regular folk. So. You're going to see, I believe, a huge regulation wave over the next 12 months as it relates to let's regulate DeFi. We need Uh to regulate DeFi. I think that's Uh going to be a very political, uh, hot topic, politically speaking, over the next 12 months. Um, I'm worried about that because I don't know what that regulation is going to look like. Is it going to be loose regulation? Is it going to be tight regulation? Uh, where is it going to be adopted? Is it going to pass? Lots of question marks, lots of uncertainties there. As I've said before, the best case for cryptos is loose regulation because there mm-hmm. is a huge swath of the general populace that will not use cryptos until there is some regulation. They just won't touch unregulated markets and reasonably so. Look at what happened with Terra, okay? So there's a huge swath of the population that will not touch unregulated markets. Therefore, the best outcome for cryptos is loose regulation. Put some regulation Mm -hmm. in there just enough to get those people comfortable, but not enough to stifle innovation and progress. That loose regulation Mm -hmm. Goldilocks environment is the winning recipe for cryptos but that doesn't mean it's what we're going to get so mm-hmm. i don't know what we're going to get i know we're going to get a new wave of regulation is that going to land on the looser side on the tighter side mm-hmm. right down the fairway i don't know and because of all those uncertainties it's really hard to predict what the impact of regulation over the next total 24 months will be on the prices of cryptocurrencies and again, isn't the the concept of DeFi to be with almost without regulation in itself? Right, but uh, the collapse of Terra um, and, and, the- and again, I totally understand the the, the point where where again loose regula- regulation without you know stifling innovation. But what happens to all those the the early adopters who went in on this, who do have good intentions, who do have good innovations coming out of it? that went into it without the with the notion that they weren't going to be restricted in what they were doing. Uh, that's uh, that was never going to happen. OK. Um, 
it just, it was never good. I mean, everything in in the world today and mm-hmm. for the foreseeable future, regulations have to be a thing, and they forever sure. will be a thing. So this tr- this idea of a truly decentralized, truly democratized um, society built on the blockchain is only possible. <laughs> if we have some regulatory framework behind it. So it's mm-hmm. not truly decentralized and truly democratized. And on that point, what a lot of people really misunderstand about cryptos is that when you look at the big projects, they are very mm-hmm. centralized. Mm-hmm. They're, 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 it's faux decentralization. You think you're okay. buying into this decentralized idea because that's the idea they're pitching, but go look at the tokenomics. Go look at who's actually holding it. About mm-hmm. 50% of the supply of a lot of these tokens is held by like the top 10 people. Mm-hmm. So it's like you think it's decentralized, but it's not. It's basically mm-hmm. just like company shares where the CEO owns 10% or this board member owns 5% or that hedge fund owns 20%. Mm-hmm. That's what a lot of these cryptos look like when you look at their ownership, their governance. So um, to say that the the loose regulation is antithetical to the core cause of cryptocurrencies, well, mm-hmm. so is the actual governance and tokenomics of a lot of these tokens <laughs> already. So uh-huh. I think that, that we, we can't look at it through this black and white lens. We have to look at it mm-hmm. through shades of gray. Um, mm-hmm. And what we need to do is land on the right shade of gray. And I think we will right. eventually, but we may land on a few wrong shades of gray before we land on the right one. Uh, kind of continuing off of that idea, though, and uh, is that VCs are still raising and funding projects like wild right now, uh, despite it kind of being this crypto winner. Uh, can you speak to that? And why are, why are they buying up? all this crypto right now they were until last month (laughs) (laughs) uh last month uh vc investment in the crypto space dropped about 40 percent uh month over month and it was it was a steep precipitous drop that uh, has Mm -hmm. not been seen in several years so um they were until they weren't uh you know Uh vc dollars are now drying up that pipeline in the crypto world is drying up except for a16z who just raised 4.5 billion dollars so yeah uh, that money's got to get deployed somewhere and it's going to be deployed but i i think what's happening realistically is a lot of people compare the crypto boom and bust of 2020 to 2022 in the same Uh light as the dot-com boom and bust of 1999-2001 and i think there's a lot of truth in that comparison but now let, let's look at the dot-com as, as parallels. Um, sure. All the companies that defined the dot-com boom, public companies of 99 and 2000, most of them didn't end up being the long-term success stories. Yes, mm-hmm. there was Amazon and Microsoft and Apple in the mix, but there was also Pets.com and Webvan and Boo.com and all mm-hmm. these and, and uh, the Globe.com and Broadcast.com and Jim Cramer's The Street. I mean, there was a whole bunch of companies in there that just weren't weren't it. They were they were the wrong idea, the wrong application of truly world changing internet technology. Mm-hmm. When were the right ideas born? When were a lot of the right ideas born? They were born in the aftermath of the crash. Mm-hmm. Facebook came about in 2004. Netflix didn't start streaming until 2011, 2012, when they broke it uh, as, as a standalone service. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Alphabet didn't go public. Google didn't go public until 2004. Um, a lot of these companies... It was act. They were born 
in the aftermath of the crash after mm-hmm. SHIT hit the fan. You know, after things got really bad, people learned their lessons mm-hmm. and then became, um, you know, created better versions of what was in the 1999-2000 uh, boom and bust. Now, mm-hmm. a really interesting analysis here. Let me see if I can pull it up real quick. Mm-hmm. Uh Okay. I got an article in front of me. Mm-hmm. Where are they now? 17 17.com bubble <laughs> companies and their founders. And I was going through this list and I was like, "Man, these companies that went under, mm-hmm. they actually exist today. Just like mm-hmm. the second iteration of them, like okay. the 2.0 version. Mm-hmm. So when I look at, um, let's look at uh, Napster, for example. Sure. That's yeah. just like Spotify 1.0, mm-hmm. right? Napster was this dot-com sensation, went under. Spotify learned what they did wrong, created a streaming business that today is a massive success story. There was a company called Webvan in 1999-2000. They were doing basically on-demand delivery for groceries. Mm-hmm. Sounds a lot like Uber Eats, huh? Sounds a lot like DoorDash, yeah. huh? Right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. Webvan failed. DoorDash and Uber Eats picked up the pieces in that failure and then created a business that actually works today. Um mm-hmm. When I look at, let's see, look at some of these others here. Pets.com, right? That's basically Chewy. Pets.com, yep. place you can buy it, buy pet supplies online. That failed. Mm-hmm. Chewy learned from the failures, built Chewy, which today is a success. Um, there were a lot, a lot of search engines before Google. Alta Vista was one of them, right? That went under Google, mm-hmm. picked up the pieces. So uh, eToys.com, you know, that's basically kind of Amazon selling toys online. So, mm-hmm. like, there were a lot of... Uh, boo.com it was this this fashion site online apparel kind of sounds mm-hmm. a little bit like farfetch uh mm-hmm. so what you're seeing is that or what i saw when i was doing this analysis i was like wow these were great ideas they were the mm-hmm. right companies but they happened at the wrong time and they didn't really know what they were doing. They didn't iron out the kinks. They didn't understand mm-hmm. how to execute. They didn't even know what the internet was going to be or what its power was or how far it was going to extend. And so you had these genius ideas that just went flop because it was the wrong time. It was too mm-hmm. early. Could you see a similar thing in the crypto boom and bust? Maybe. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you look at a company, you look at you look at projects out there, and you're like, that's a genius project. This should absolutely work. And you may be right, but that particular project may not be the one that executes it. It's that particular project may have to fail in order for somebody else to be born after that, that learns from that failure and then creates the true iteration of that idea that works in the world, that adds value to consumers' lives. So mm-hmm. From that perspective, I think a lot of VCs are seeing the market that way. I think they're like, okay, we're going to get this massive washout. From Mm -hmm. this washout, we're going to learn a lot of things. A lot of new projects are going to be born, and those new projects are going to carry the flagpole forward. They're Mm going to be the actual winners in the entire 
crypto boom, the secular crypto boom, not just mm-hmm. this near term crypto boom, the secular one. It's going to be these new startups that emerge that learn from the failures of Terra, that learn mm-hmm. from the failures of big projects and create better versions in the future. Mm-hmm. I think that's where VCs are. That's why A16Z raised a lot of money. That's mm-hmm. why I think there is opportunity in the crypto markets, but you have to be patient. It's going to take time for this whole washout to happen. Once mm-hmm. it does happen, you are going to get opportunities like buying Amazon at five bucks in 2001. You're going to get the similar opportunity here in probably 23, 24, mm-hmm. but probably in 23, 24, not mm-hmm. right now. You got to let more washout happen. You got to let more projects go under. You got to let more high profile funds just kind of go bankrupt. Then there's going to be this sort of rebirthing of the industry. That's when you want to get in. And a lot of the things you end up buying then may not even be around today. So Mm -hmm. be patient. Be patient. That's my number one advice for crypto investors right now. Gotcha. Uh, Again, also kind of going back to some of the VC stuff, we're also seeing some VCs dumping once their crypto unlocks. You talked about that a little earlier. Are they kind of just gaming the system uh, or do they believe and do you believe that this is the way that crypto is designed to work? Uh, It's it's not designed to work like that. And this is why we need regulation. Okay. Because, yeah, you're right. Um, You can have, I mean, like Squid Games, for example, right? That Mm -hmm. was one where the developers, the anonymous developers owned all the supply and then they just dumped it on everybody and Mm -hmm. everything went to zero, right? So you need regulation so stuff like that doesn't happen. Um, VCs don't tend to do that because they, you know, tend to be a little bit more ethical than um, just Mm -hmm. pure scam artists. But that doesn't mean they can't do it. Mm -hmm. They could. They wanted to. Um, tokenomics sometimes are structured in a way that allows them to do that. So that's why there needs to be some regulation in here so that we don't have situations like that. Because what regulation does is it boosts confidence. People don't confidently trust things Mm. that aren't regulated. That's just societal norms today. If Mm. you were to go into a bar and you knew that every bar fight in there was going to go unchecked, that... Mm -hmm. Every, you know, that drinks were free and that there was going to be nobody to, to kind of keep a, a tab on that, mm-hmm. then you probably wouldn't go into that bar on the idea that everybody's going to be rushing for these free drinks. There's going to be fights that break out over it. Someone's mm-hmm. going to break their nose. People are drunk. It's going to be scary. Yeah. That's a bar I, I would pass on. Now, there mm-hmm. are some people that want to get into that bar for the free alcohol. Congratulations. But there are a lot of people, myself included, that say, all right, let's go to uh, an establishment where there are rules. Let's mm-hmm. go to an establishment where I feel safe, where I feel secure, mm-hmm. where I know that's not sure. going to happen, where if there is a bar fight, I know the cops are going to show up or a bouncer is going to show up and it's, it's going to be OK. Um, same thing with cryptos and even more so because you're talking about your own money. You're talking about investing with your own money. So there's a whole lot of people that look at cryptos right now as the Wild West and say, uh, not for me. You add some regulations mm-hmm. in there. Yeah, you check people for bar fights and all of a sudden you're going to get a lot more people through the doors. You're going to get a mass adoption um, of those cryptocurrency um, platforms. And actually on that note, something I did want to touch on, and it's something that I kind of threw by my team this week, or was it last week? Last week I threw it by my Mm -hmm. team. There, There are charts floating around everywhere that compare crypto adoption to internet adoption, right? Okay, yep. 
Um, and we've talked about it before on this podcast. Crypto adoption in 2020 looks a lot, you know, the, the crypto adoption trends of 2020 the 2010s and the 2020 look a lot like the internet adoption trends of the 1990s and the 2000 and it's a basis for mm -hmm. the internet went on to change the world crypto is going to go change the world and sure. i think that's yeah. a very relevant comparison mm -hmm. but when you look at those charts you look at the data it's not an apples to apples comparison because the internet adoption stat that people are using is mm -hmm. the number of people who were using the internet Mm -hmm. full stop yep the crypto adoption one that people are using is the number of people who buy hold or trade a cryptocurrency over the past 12 months full stop so mm -hmm. what we're comparing is people that were actually using the internet to do things in the 90s to communicate mm -hmm to shop, to uh, play music or videos. We're comparing that vein of adoption with mm -hmm. the vein of adoption in the 2010s with cryptos of just buying or selling a cryptocurrency. Is that really mm -hmm. using a cryptocurrency? Like mm -hmm. when I think of adoption, I wanna know the number of people that are using dApps. I want to know the number of people that are actually on the blockchain doing something, whether they mm -hmm. buy NFTs, own NFTs, whether they have NFTs in their homes, whether they're, mm -hmm. like I said, using dApps, whether they're in these metaverse, in Decentraland, in Sandbox. Mm -hmm. I want that number. Give me the number mm -hmm. of people who are interacting and actually using the blockchain, not people who are just speculating, you know, buying mm -hmm. cryptos and selling cryptos. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't, that, that's not crypto adoption. Mm hmm. That's just a measure of greed. It's not a measure of crypto adoption. It's a measure mm -hmm. of greed. Oh, yeah. these cryptos are going up. I'm going to buy Dogecoin or Shiba Inu and make money. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean you believe in the blockchain. It doesn't mean you're using the blockchain. It means you're speculating. Mm -hmm. So I want the number that actually benchmarks adoption. And that's a tough number to find. Mm -hmm. And it is significantly, it is assuredly significantly lower than the number of people that are just speculating. So from that perspective, crypto adoption today is actually lagging in an adoption of the 90s, which short term bearish, but long term is it gets you really excited because mm -hmm. it means there is a lot of runway for crypto adoption to grow um, in a very meaningful, meaningful way. So, um, yeah, that's just something I wanted to mention as we talk about adoption trends, comparing sure, the 90s yeah. and whatnot. Um, adoption is actually a lot lower than what a lot of charts are showing because do not get fooled by the Y axis data of people buying or selling cryptos who cares mm. about that number it's an irrelevant <laughs> number that's a number of people speculating i don't care mm -hmm. about that tell me the number of people using a dap tell mm. me the number of people who own an nft and actually hang it in their house mm -hmm. show me so, or using it as, as a profile picture on social media those mm -hmm. are hard yeah. numbers to find we're trying to, to compile a bunch of data to get some composite number there but that number is is it's not that high right now. Well, I look forward to when you get those findings for you to share with the rest of us. Um, switching gears into our fan questions, uh, our boy Rob Norman uh, has a question. Treasury yield comparison is dead on, and look at the difference in technology converging. It's only happened one other time in our history gilded age, so you'll have a higher price to uh, sales ratio. Do you agree? Yes. That was, yes, that was what we <laughs> talked about last week. Uh, multiples deserve to be higher today because uh, three things. Treasury yields are lower. 
equity risk premium can stay relatively the same. That means you get um, lower earnings yields, higher equity multiples. So uh, yes, you should get higher multiples because of lower treasury yields. Two, you're getting faster sales growth out of companies today and over the past decade than you have over you know the 1960s, 70s, and 80s because of globalization, because of more rapid economic connected growth. So you're getting faster sales growth. And number three, you're getting bigger profit margins. That mm-hmm. the profit margins today, net profit margins across the S&P 500 are like 12 13 percent historically talk about that time period that burry taught or was comparing to um from last week we're talking eight nine percent seven percent even so we're mm-hmm. talking almost double the profit margins today so that also warrants a higher price to sales multiple obviously so for all those reasons uh yes stocks deserve to trade at a higher price to sales multiple today than when they did trade at in the 80s or 70s or 60s um and any comparison that can benchmarks those or benchmarks today's valuations against those valuations without considering all the factors i just mentioned is quite frankly an irrational analysis now it would make sense if you were to give me the argument that one treasury yields are going to go meaningfully higher to four five six percent two sales growth is going to meaningfully decelerate back towards a 60s 70s like trend and three, profit margins are going to get crushed down to sub 10% levels. If you can prove those three things to me, then I would say, yes, it is fair to benchmark today's valuations to the 60s, 70s, 80s valuations. But I don't think those three things are going to happen. Any analysis that doesn't prove that, benchmarking the two makes absolutely no sense. Price of sales multiples deserve to be higher today than they happen historically. Mm. Uh, another question from Rob, uh, with the price to earnings in oil stocks still 5 to 10, can that be considered a bubble? Uh, yeah, when your earnings are going to go to zero in the long run, yep. <laughs> easy, easy question, easy answer. I know, uh, see, I, I, this, this actually this is a really good teaching point. Um, yeah. Man, not a teaching point, I don't mean to sound like a teacher, I'm not a teacher. Um, a real good point that I'd like to make. Mm-hmm. I never look at in terms of individual stock analysis it is much more important for me to look at what is the price to sales multiple or price to earnings multiple what is the multiple on your 2027 2030 projected Mm -hmm. sales and earnings i don't care what your what your forward multiple is on your 2022 earnings Mm -hmm. or 2022 sales i don't care that doesn't mm-hmm. tell me where you're going to go. That tells me what's going to happen in the next six months. Mm-hmm. I'm investing for three, four, five, ten years. I want to know what you're benchmarked against ten years down the road. And when you mm-hmm. do that with oil and gas companies, I mean, these companies, they're going to have declining sales and earnings. So they're for a lot of them, their 2025, 2027, 2030 sales and earnings multiples are higher than their 2022 ones because – 2022 earnings and sales are artificially inflated by the the sky-high oil and natural gas prices you're seeing today. Everybody and their best friend, everybody and their mother is calling for oil prices to drop in 2023, 2024, and 2025. Mm -hmm. Therefore, oil companies, natural gas companies, their sales and earnings are going to drop in 2023, 2024, 2025. You cannot, cannot benchmark these companies 
on 2022 estimates that are artificially mm-hmm. inflated by a near-term surge in fossil fuel prices. You have to benchmark them on the 2025, 2026, 2027 estimates that reflect much more normalized fossil fuel prices, long-run terminal fossil fuel prices. And when you do that, these are not value stocks. They're way overvalued. So five to 10 times forward earnings, I don't care. I, mm-hmm. I don't care. They could be one <laughs> times forward earnings. <laughs> give me the 2025 multiple. Give me the 2027 multiple. Give me the 2030 multiple. Then we'll talk. That's how I look at them. And that's why I get really excited about the hyper growth stocks that we're talking about. Because when uh-huh. you do that same analysis, everyone's like, oh my God, it's trading at eight times sales. That's ridiculously expensive. Well, guess uh-huh. what? It's also trading at five times 2030 earnings estimates. Uh-huh. That's ridiculously cheap. All you have to uh-huh. do with hyper growth stocks now is look out three, four, five years, and all of a sudden they're cheaper than everything else in the market. Uh-huh. So everybody's discounting that growth to levels that should not be discounted. That's why I get super excited about that sector. When you look out long term, you look at those estimates, you look at the multiples on those estimates, hyper growth stocks are dirt cheap. Actually, I would bet, I would <laughs> bet, and I don't know this to be true because I, I, I do not look at oil and gas companies all that much, but I would bet that mm-hmm. if we just pick some random oil or natural gas company and uh-huh. we looked at its 2030 earnings estimates uh-huh. that it would have a lower price to sales and price to earnings multiple on 2030 estimates than mm-hmm. SoFi. Mm-hmm. That's 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 what I would bet. I would I would make a strong <laughs> bet on that. So anyways, okay. that, that that's that's my way of saying I look long term, not short term, especially yeah. when you're talking about a cyclical industry like oil and natural gas exploration. Uh, you can't look at the 2022 estimates. They're meaningless. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> seriously, I'm just, I just, I love it whenever we talk about oil. I love it because I love your take on it. You want the oil take right now? We, we, we got some time. I know we're like an hour and five minutes. <laughs> we got some time. Let's go. Let's hit it. Um, at some point in the near future, oil is going to become a generational short, an mm-hmm. absolutely generational short. You okay. are getting rapid price appreciation mm-hmm. ahead of long-term demand destruction rapid severe Mm -hmm. and significant demand destruction that creates a situation where oil is going to turn into a generational short at some point in the near future not right now i -hmm. think you got to get a blow your top off rally i think you got to. i mean that that's how bull markets end right bull markets end with this final hurrah this big gusto push to the top it's going to go to infinity and that's mm-hmm. when everything breaks. So yeah. I think you're probably going to blow your top off rally to 140, 150. Maybe there's a temporary spike to 180. Mm-hmm. At any point there, when we start to get that blow your top off to the 140, 150, 160, 180 range, that's when you mm-hmm. go short. You go short immediately then and there because that is going to be a top at which point oil is going to drop 70 or 80% over the subsequent three, four, five years. And my mm-hmm. confidence in that is rooted in the numbers. When you look at the supply demand, oil prices are a function of supply and demand and nothing else. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. What determines the price of oil is supply and demand. Same thing as anything else in the market. Mm-hmm. And you look at daily supply, daily demand of oil. Over the past 50 years, we've sort of averaged this cadence of two to four millions of barrels per day of excess supply. So supply is mm-hmm. outshipped demand by two to four millions of barrels per day. And that is led to price, you know, and, and then it bounces, prices bounce between 20 to 100, 140 sometimes, and, and rare anomalies, 150, right? So we kind of get this bouncing there. When I run the numbers, 
the International Energy Agency said that this shift to electric vehicles alone is going to cause demand destruction of 5 million barrels per day uh, on the demand side of the equation. That's Mm -hmm. a shift to EVs alone. Let's talk about the shift to hydrogen. Let's talk about the shift to solar. Let's talk about the shift to energy storage systems, wind, the, the, the real clean energy shift. That's easily another 5 million barrels per day of demand destruction. Mm-hmm. Let's call it 10 million barrels per day of total demand destruction by 2030. We're at 100 million barrels per day of demand uh, right now. Take out 10, you're looking at 90. Let's go to the supply Mm -hmm. side of the equation. The markets are balanced right now, 100, 100. So Mm -hmm. supply is 100. You are going to get increased investment into building out um, the supply side of this market because of the elevation in prices. That's what happens in oil markets. Prices go up, supply goes up uh, subsequently. But there's going to be some supply destruction as demand moderates, a lot of do, whatever. Let's say it's 5 million barrels per day of, of supply destruction. Then you're looking at a market that's got by 2030, 90 on the demand side, 95 on the supply side. That is a surplus of five. I told you before, we've never broken four on uh, supply excess, 4 million barrels per day on supply excess for the past 50 years. We're going to be at five, I think, by 2030. So that means my 2030 long-term terminal price target for oil should be below $40 a barrel, below Mm -hmm. anything it's ever been sustainably in the past. We're Mm -hmm. talking about a push towards 150 right now. What I'm saying is that you're going to get that blow your top off rally to 150, 160. It's going to turn into a generational short. We're going to drop to 40 by the end of the decade. People are going to make a lot of money on the short side of this trade. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm starting to hear murmurs of some hedge funds starting to go short these the natural gas, the, the oil, the fossil fuel commodities. I don't think it's time yet. We got to get, like I said, that blow your top off rally. But pretty soon we're going to get us. I mean, it's, it, it's going to make the big short of 2008 mm-hmm. against the, the, the housing market. It's going to make that look like a small short. You're going to get a huge short opportunity against oil within mm-hmm. the next 12 months, I think. Well, uh, hopefully in 12 months we'll have that. that side note. I just, you got me going about oil, so I had, to, I had to give you the numbers on it. I had to give you the numbers on why I am so bearish on oil long term. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense. It, it totally makes sense. Um, Lo asks, uh, last week's show started with Luke's bullish take on NEO, opposite of oil. Uh, any comment on the uh, delisting risk on NEO? Uh, it was listed in Hong Kong uh, on yeah, most recently listed in Singapore as well, are these signs that they might be preparing to exit from the U.S. stock exchange? Uh, I think there's signs that they're prepared, um, but I don't think it's going to happen. Um, I actually think Chinese stocks, I, I, I can never get too bullish mm-hmm. on China, just like I never can get that bullish. Neo's mm-hmm. an exception. Um, but I do think Chinese stocks are due for a okay. bounce here. Uh, China's rollback, COVID mm-hmm. restrictions across Shanghai and now Beijing. The economy is going to probably normalize significantly by the summer. Um, you're probably going to get a lot of supply build from NEO and other EV makers. I think those stocks have been punished, are due for a big bounce back. I really like NEO because they're really sensitive to the COVID lockdowns because of all the mm-hmm. production, right? And who's buying a new electric car when you're locked down inside your home? Um, so I really think that NEO is, is due for a pretty big bounce here. I really like them. Um, and I really like a lot of 
Yeah, I don't want to say it. I don't like Chinese stocks because I just, they, they, yeah, there's something that feels weird about it. There's too many risks. But I think the short-term outlook there is pretty positive going into the summer. I think that we get a nice summer bounce in those stocks. They're too beaten up. China's normalizing. That creates a good kind of concoction for a rally. Mm. Uh, another another question from CS Lowe. Uh, Jamie Diamond said to brace yourself for an economic hurricane. What does he mean by that? <laughs> The Hurricane by Jamie Dimon. It's so funny, man. <laughs> J.P. Morgan, that the, the, Jamie Dimon's the CEO of J.P. Morgan. They, I don't know if the people at J.P.M. aren't talking to each other, <laughs> but the very same day, J, Jamie yeah. Dimon, CEO, right. head honcho yep. of J.P. Morgan, economic hurricanes yep. coming, going to be bad, disastrous, horrible. The same day, his the, the head of global strategy at JPM, a guy named Marco Kovanich, Kol, Kol, I don't know, I'm going to butcher his last name. Let's call him sure. Marco. And Marco, Marco is a true uh, veteran on Wall mm -hmm. Street. He's actually, CNBC called him half man, half God, because he has been so right so many times. Anyways, JP Morgan CEO, Jamie Dimon, economic hurricane coming. Hours later, Marco, head of global strategy at JP Morgan. Stocks are going to recover in the second <laughs> half of 2022. We're not going into a reception. <laughs> Are they, are they even yeah. talking over there? Goldman Sachs has seen a, has seen a similar mm -hmm. disagreement. Uh, we, we've seen some some heads over there not agree on the outlook for the economy. So Jamie Dimon says an economic hurricane's coming. Does he actually mean it? I don't think so. Um, I, I, I think he's doing his part. I, I think what we realize, what a lot of smart people mm -hmm. have realized, is that the best outcome for the U.S. economy here is just to scare the living crap out of consumers mm -hmm. and companies so that the economy naturally slows and doesn't need artificial mm -hmm. slowing, okay? Because if the economy doesn't slow, then the Fed is going to, has to hike rates aggressively. Mm -hmm. Aggressive rate hiking is going to cause artificial slowing, and that's what leads to economic mm -hmm. hurricanes, but if you get a natural slowdown mm -hmm. and the Fed doesn't have to aggressively hike rates, then you get a soft mm -hmm. landing. Everybody wants a soft landing. Jamie Dimon wants mm -hmm. a soft landing. But he knows in order to get a soft landing, we first need to scare the crap mm -hmm. out of people. We need to get them to stop spending so much. We need to get companies to tighten their belts. We need to slow the demand side of the inflation equation while simultaneously improving the supply side to moderate inflation, leading to the Fed not hiking rates as much and leading to us getting a soft landing. Jamie Dimon knows this. The head of Goldman Sachs knows this. I think even Elon Musk mm -hmm. knows this. And so you're seeing rhetoric from the top and an almost – too purposeful mm -hmm. way of saying something bad is just around mm -hmm. the corner. I think it's not a coordinated effort, but I think people understand, those people understand, our best shot at a soft landing here is a natural slowing of the economy. And our best shot at a it's natural slowing people. of the economy is to scare the consumer uh -huh. and to scare the enterprise. If we do that, we get a natural slowing, the Fed doesn't have to hike as much, we get a soft landing, 2023 will be super pretty. Um, so I think that is sort of what's going on there. I don't know for sure. It's just my theory, but it's a good theory. I it's wouldn't not, be too concerned it about it. Sounds valid to me. Um, it sounds good to you. Sounds, sounds good, good to you. Well, that's good. Yeah, I wouldn't be. Long story short, I wouldn't be too concerned about what Jamie Dimon said about the uh, the economic hurricane gotcha. on the horizon. I would just wouldn't wouldn't be too concerned. Well, about that. we have time for one more question uh, from uh, Stephen Hamoki. 
This sounds very bullish. Uh, he, I think he's talking, he's basically talking about our insider buying that we talked about last week. Uh, curious, what indicator can I use to find insider buying as you have displayed? I can see in it, it in a specific company, but how do you get in, onto a macro level of the insider buying? Uh, let's do this. I'll give you guys a free resource mm -hmm. to help you do this. Let's screen share. Can you see yep. me? Mm -hmm. Or see yep. the screen? Awesome. Openinsider.com. Openinsider.com. Write it down, folks. Get a pen and paper. Write it down. <laughs> Openinsider.com. Right. You want here you can get your latest, your latest buys, latest insider purchases, 25k mm. plus. Get that nice little sleep number ad because that's yep. awesome. Um I and mean, here's all your buys, la di la di do, bunch of mm -hmm. buys, bunch of buys. Oh, look, there's my, there's my SoFi CEO with his $150,000 oh, purchase. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you want, you, want, you want the macro stuff, go to charts. Mm -hmm. Boom. There's your charty chart. Gotcha. You purchases, your sales, define your dates. Boom, 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 boom. So as you can see, like I was saying, there's that there's that insider mm -hmm. spike last week. That's been the biggest since uh, since the COVID mm -hmm. pandemic emerged back in March and yep. May, uh, early 2020. So, so openinsider.com. Yeah, so awesome. That, well, that that answers uh, Steve's question. <laughs> great resource. Great free resource. I'm all about mm -hmm. free resources. You shouldn't have to pay for information. Well, we are we had a we had a few more questions, but we're kind of out of time. Uh, insights, great insights as always for our listeners. No, no such thing as out of time. What are the questions? Uh, you know, okay, we'll go back. Actually, our last question. Uh, not sure if you covered Mullen uh, or not, but just wanted to get your take on them and if they're going to make it against current and upcoming competition. Thanks again and love the show. Uh, I have not looked at Mullen specifically. I think maybe I went to their investor relations website for like all of two minutes. Um, <laughs> I'd have to, I'd, I'd, I'd have to say the, the without doing any research, they're, they're probably not going to okay. make it. <laughs> they don't, they don't have enough resources. Mm -hmm. When I looked at the team, I was like, who yeah. are these people? Um, I looked at the LinkedIn There's hardly anybody's working there. That's of any importance mm -hmm. really like, you know, kind of like significant engineering yep. background here. Uh, you know, one of the reasons we love lucid is, is basically the guys who mm -hmm. built Tesla guys and girls, excuse me, who built Tesla jumped ship in there now building lucid. So that gave us a lot of confidence in lucid Rivian's got a great engineering team. Uh, this is a really competitive marketplace. Yeah. We talked about it on this call. We are disrupting, a multi-trillion dollar industry, every facet of it for the first time in a hundred uh -huh. years. And everybody and their best friend is rushing into the industry. Tesla, Rivian, Lucid, Apple's jumping uh -huh. into the game. Um, GM and Ford are revolutionizing the way uh -huh. they do things to jump into this game. Everybody's getting in here. VC dollars are pouring hand over fist in here. If you're Mullen Automotive, what do you have that uh -huh. they don't? What are you going to do that everyone else is, is not already mm -hmm. doing? How are you going to win a little slice of that pie by 2030? Mm -hmm. I don't think they can. I don't think they will. I'm saying that as somebody, like I said, I've done two minutes of research mm -hmm. into the company. I went to the website. I went to the investor relations site. I, I looked at the team. I looked at the deck. 
That was about it. That's about all I've done with them. I've, I've not spent more than 120 seconds on this company. That was pretty much all I needed to do to say, I don't think their odds of success mm-hmm. are that high or high enough to warrant me taking mm-hmm. a deeper dive here. So that, that's what I'll say mm-hmm. about Mullen. All right. Well, great insights as always for our listeners. Uh, do you have any last words before we wrap? We covered a lot today. <laughs> Hour, hour 18 to 19, hour, hour, hour 18. Good job, Aaron. <laughs> Good job. Thank you. Appreciate it. I, I had fun today. I had fun. I, I love talking about this stuff. I could talk about it for two, three hours. Maybe we should start a, a new podcast called the, the, uh, the Super Long Hyper Growth Investing Podcast. Super Long Hyper Growth Investing for those Podcast. Those well, hey, Hyper Growth, for three or hyper four growth Investing means long term. So why not make these uh, podcasts more long term? Uh, <laughs> But again, Luke, appreciate everything that you've had to say today. Uh, Again, amazing insights as always. Uh, And we want to thank everybody for listening. And if you have any questions or comments for Luke, we'd love to hear them in our comments section, like CS Lowe and Rob Norman, uh, and any feedback on topics you'd like us to cover. And again, see if we can answer any of your burning questions. Until then, please don't forget to like and subscribe, and we will see you next week. Bye, all.